Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Frank, we're back with another podcast. We're going to pick up kind of where we left off and where we didn't really get a chance to cover some ground. Uh, But before we get going, how are you today? Doing pretty good. Uh, I thought our last conversation about how ocean inspections come about and and working through the opening conference uh, and and beginning the walk around, I thought those were pretty timely given that uh, OSHA's enforcement staff is now at full force for the first time in a couple of years, and we're seeing more inspections than ever. Uh, so I'm I'm glad we had an opportunity to have that discussion last time. I hope that uh, everybody listening today has either listened to that one or will listen to it in the future. Yes, and remember, the price of these podcasts is, is is wonderful. It's free, available wherever you listen to podcasts or most of the places you listen to podcasts. But Frank, I wanted to shift gears just a little bit and, and talk about the responsibilities an employer has when an inspection is taking place. You know, what are the legal obligations that an employer has during an inspection? And, and if you could share some thoughts relative to what legally an employer is obligated to do, I would appreciate it. Well, you know, in keeping with some of our previous podcasts, I don't think anyone would be surprised that my number one consideration during an inspection is to make sure everybody's being truthful. Uh, That's the main way that people get in trouble is if uh, they're not being truthful uh, during an inspection. And and by getting in trouble, I mean criminal trouble uh, because you'd be charged with a felony for for lying uh, to OSHA or uh, or even if, if if you try to alter evidence to tell a different story than the truth, that falls under the same caption. So my number one operating principle is be truthful. A couple of other things that we often talk about is OSHA has a an outline of of employer actions that they consider to be obstructionist, and you can get a negative inference during an inspection if OSHA determines that the employer's obstructed the inspection in an unreasonable, unlawful way. And last time we talked about lawful ways to limit the scope or to, to guide the scope of the inspection. Those are lawful ways. Uh, obstructionists, uh, they have some very specific examples of being obstructionists. Some some include um, threats to the compliance officer, uh, physical threats or physical intimidation uh, obviously, those things are not allowed under the OSH Act. They're not allowed under the law, and and uh, people can get in trouble for that. Another obligation is a, a real documentary obligation, and that's once OSHA makes its entry, has the opening conference, they can make a request for the OSHA injury logs, and those are due within four hours unless the compliance officer agrees to a different deadline what I'm finding with regard to that is that newer compliance officers tend to be asking for those documents to be produced in four hours, uh, whereas historically I, I didn't see that uh, as often. And then lastly, uh, in big cases, we often get letters asking us to preserve the scene. 
from OSHA. OSHA will send a, a scene preservation letter asking that nothing change about the scene uh, before the compliance officer is able to get out there. And generally, the expectation is the employer will uh, abide by that letter absent extraordinary circumstances or absent uh, an agreement with OSHA. To the contrary, failure to abide by that letter can result in uh, charges of of uh, evidence spoliation or altering a scene. It seems to me like you had a some story to illustrate what I'm talking about with regard to altering evidence, John. Do I remember that right? You did, Frank, and, and a couple of thoughts on that. But the story is this. So I had a case about 15 years ago, and uh, it was a, a tragic case. A, a young father of three children under the age of five uh, fell and, and hit the ground 43 feet below where he was working, ultimately causing his demise. And throughout the course of the inspection, uh, my client, and unfortunately, I, I did not arrive at the scene until the employee who died uh, was, was loaded up into the ambulance. They were still documenting and then cleaning up the scene itself. All the way along throughout this inspection, my client is swearing up and down that this employee was wearing his fall protection harness and, you know, for whatever reason, you know, whether he didn't snap onto the, the line or whether, you know, something failed, you know, he fall, he, he fell. And um, I had a, a pretty decent relationship with the co-show that was involved and the co-show kind of pulled me aside after I think it was the third interview of the managers. And, and I knew something was unusual when we're, going back for a third set of interviews and the focus was pretty much on, you know, are you a hundred percent sure that they were wearing the fall protection harness? And basically the, the, the co-show told me, you know, look, we're going to come back and we're going to ask your guys one more time. I'm going to show you a photograph and you know, we're going to have us marshals here to talk to your folks the next time. And he shows me this photo and the photo was, basically a fall protection harness that had been thrown on top of the injured employee as he laid on the ground. So there was no way he had that fall protection harness on him. Um, and then they went one step further and, and kind of later on cut the fall harness up some to make it look like when the paramedics and EMTs arrived, they cut it off of the employee. Fortunately, the compliance officer and I had a good relationship. And so that little heads up allowed me to talk to my client and say, Hey, look, you know, this is what they showed me, you know, did this really happen? Because, you know, quite frankly, and this goes back to the obligation to tell the truth, the obligation not to alter the scene and the obligation not to obstruct a federal employee in the course of their investigation. They were facing a very real possibility of being charged criminally. That would have been a tough one to beat given the photographic evidence shows this fall protection harness laying on this person in one piece, not damaged. And later on, the pictures of the fall protection harness show that it had been cut up. That's a pretty damning story. I mean, Frank, at the end of the day, would you agree with me that basically the expectations and obligations that an employer has, save and accept the 300 log, because that's kind of a statutory creation or a rulemaking creation. I mean, it, it's, it's basically the same sort of stuff that we would expect of anybody in the course of any dealings with them. 
basically be honest, be candid, be forthright, and don't lie to us. Uh, yeah, no, I think that is the expectation. And, you know, we, we have that same expectation of our clients, right? Is that uh, they'll, they'll make uh, honest representations to us. So, so we're making honest representations to the government. Frank, I wanted to go back to something. And, you know, you, you mentioned a, a, a legal term, spoliation of evidence. And, and, and I think that that bears a little bit of discussion because that has some impacts and some ramifications beyond just the interaction with the compliance officer in OSHA. And that can have some impacts on civil litigation that arises out of one of these incidents. Could you talk a little bit about the concept of spoliation of evidence, kind of what the legal ramification is in the civil litigation context, and then, you know, kind of how that can crop up in the context of, you know, one of these accidents where, you know, and, and, and you know, kind of foreshadowing here, you know, particularly where there's multiple employers involved. I'll go at it at maybe a 30,000 foot view here. So usually this issue comes up when there's a fatality, right? Sometimes when it's a very, very serious injury, but typically with a fatality. And OSHA will typically issue an evidence preservation letter. Uh, Amazingly, uh, the next of kin for employees that are involved in workplace fatalities are very quick to retain lawyers. And those lawyers frequently will also send preservation letters to make sure that the evidence doesn't get altered. And so on the one hand, OSHA has issued this spoliation or this uh, preservation letter, and that creates obligations under the OSHA Act. On the other hand, uh, the civil lawyer, plaintiff's lawyer, issues spoliation letter or an evidence preservation letter to make sure that the evidence doesn't get altered until they and their expert can get out to an inspect. And uh, those are obligations with somewhat different consequences. The consequences for not preserving a scene as directed by OSHA has, uh, has implications under the OSHA Act and can lead to criminal implications if, if uh, the scene is altered. If a plaintiff's lawyer issues an evidence preservation letter, then any change to the to the equipment uh, or the scene can result in sanctions from a civil court. There's different exposures uh, for failure to comply with an evidence preservation letter. Now, spoliation can uh, can occur in different ways, right? For instance, take a piece of equipment, say a forklift was involved in an accident and you get the preservation letter, but instead of preserving the forklift and in its position at the scene. In other words, instead of freezing time, the employer puts the forklift back into operation after having received the evidence preservation letter, then uh, there can be some negative inferences drawn in a civil litigation case saying that that repairs or fixes were made, that the employer is trying to cover up a, a reason for his, for its responsibility for the injury. And in fact, finding can be made against the employer for altering or letting that evidence spoil, as it were. Uh, And the same analysis goes under the OSHA Act, that there can be a negative inference in the citation by the OSHA judges, but if it's a real alteration of the scene, then they can get more aggressive and refer it to the Department of Justice in, in the same manner as if they believed that the employer was lying about it. 
it's kind of been my experience that OSHA tends to be a little slower in issuing those evidence preservation letters than the the, the attorneys for, and I'm just going to say the parties because sometimes it's been you know, another employer on a multi-employer scene, or sometimes it's an equipment manufacturer, what have you. And and those folks tend to get on issuing those preservation letters. I mean, I've had orders come down from federal courts before the end of the day of the incident, and it's been several days before OSHA gets their letter out. When you have two letters telling you to preserve the evidence, how do you navigate that process between OSHA and the private litigant? If there's a preservation letter in place, then preserve the evidence. And I work with the party that issued the letter to try to get their investigation out of the way so we can move on. So Frank, let's kind of wrap this part of the conversation up. Have you had experiences where your clients received notices from both OSHA and the private litigants indicating that they're supposed to preserve evidence. And and does OSHA typically work with your clients and the private litigant to reach a resolution that, that's, that's workable for all involved? Uh, yes, uh, clients have received both. And I haven't seen OSHA try to reconcile uh, a, a civil plaintiff lawyer's request to maintain a site. Uh, however, I've worked many times with OSHA to resolve OSHA's inquiry and then move on. Typically, I don't work with the civil plaintiffs. In most cases, workers' comp hires a lawyer who works with the, the civil plaintiff. Transitioning on, you know, in light of sort of some of the legal expectations that are placed on employers, the employers also have legal rights of their own that essentially they can expect OSHA to comply with. Isn't that a fair statement? It it is. And, and, you know, last time we talked about the Fourth Amendment and the ability uh, for OSHA to enter and how they need probable cause to have a basis to enter. But that's entry of property. The Fourth Amendment also prevents unlawful seizures of property, which uh, often comes up in cases where there's an item uh, that was involved in the accident, maybe a piece of equipment or documents that OSHA requires. And and so we always, during an inspection, have to make a determination about what we're going to be willing to let OSHA walk out the door with. Uh, OSHA will often ask for instruments that they can take with them to preserve uh, and promise to give them back at some point in the future. And sometimes that point never happens where you get it back. But documents are an easier issue to deal with. They'll ask for documents and typically I'll ask for it in a written request so I can keep track of it and then provide them those documents and Bates label them so we can keep track of what we've provided them. If it's, uh, for instance, just a physical instrument though, like a, a push rod of some sort, there's usually not duplicates of that. So you have to think about how you're going to preserve that evidence if you decide to give it to OSHA without forcing OSHA to, to subpoena the piece of evidence. Other than sort of the, the, the Fourth Amendment rights relative to privacy searches, that sort of thing, other than the, the what I'd characterize uh, or what my old law school refer to as, as your property rights under the Constitution, you know, like not giving up your property um, without appropriate legal process undertaking. Are there any other legal rights that an employer can exercise in the scope of an inspection by OSHA? 
once you've had the opening conference and agreed to the walk around, an employer is authorized to accompany the OSHA compliance officer during the inspection. Uh, the employer is authorized to take the same photographs that the OSHA compliance officer takes. The employer can take the same videos. And most compliance officers are candid and open about what they're photographing. I've looked over their shoulder to make sure I'm taking the same picture. I've asked them to look over my shoulder to make sure I'm taking the same picture or or whoever the employer is, just to make in sure fact, that we're duplicating the file. Right. And in fact, some of them will actually not only do that, but they'll actually verbally describe what they're taking the picture of, right? I've always found compliance officers to be cooperative in that way. I've never had an issue with that. Uh, and the employer has the right to take notes during the, in, the walk around. The employer has the right to voice concerns. For instance, sometimes the compliance officer will want to interview employees during the walk around and the employer has the right to say, hey, that employee's working right now. I'd like to set up an interview away from the work site so that employee's not distracted or so it's not interrupting processes. And in most cases, the compliance officers will agree to that. And the employer has a right to have somebody present when managers are being interviewed. Uh, and those managers have the right not to sign any agreements, not to sign any documentation. To, because when OSHA does these interviews, they often will write out what's, uh, what they want to call a sworn statement and then ask the managers to sign it. Well, that manager's entitled to have somebody present with the manager and that manager's entitled uh, not to sign that statement. Although they often feel, managers often, in my experience, feel pressured to show up without anybody representing them and, and still sign. And I think it's important that we point out that it's the company's right to have somebody sit with a manager. It's the company's right. It's not a manager's right. So I always assert that right on behalf of clients uh, with regard to management interviews. And then during the walk around, the compliance officers will sometimes ask to reenact an accident or to reenact a process or operation. My position always is if they want to see a function of a piece of machinery, they need to be there when the equipment's running and that I'm not going to authorize or that I'm not going to recommend that my client run a piece of equipment just to show them how it works. I always uh, tend to invite OSHA to come back at a time when the line is running or when the piece of equipment's running so they can see it, for lack of a better word, in its natural operation instead of a staged operation. Well, those demonstrations can sometimes blow up in OSHA's face too. I mean... Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I had a case in Wyoming... And, and I'll give you kind of the high-level story here. Basically, it related to an electrical safety situation. We hadn't been retained during the inspection. We were retained once the inspection was complete. And the, the Wyoming compliance officers had our clients basically demonstrate and set up the same situation that was apparently involved in the situation that resulted in the death of the employee. And OSHA cited the employee with a willful violation, basically claiming that the, the, the condition was so dangerous, the employer knew or essentially should have known that it was in violation of the act and, and you know, was almost certain to cause you know, serious injury or, or, or death. And, and, you know, our response to that in the informal conference was, well, 
but you made us do this same thing that you're claiming was likely to cause death. And, and, and interestingly enough, the Wyoming OSHA, and I don't remember what the position was, but the person that was running that informal conference basically agreed with us and they actually ended up withdrawing that willful citation because they realized that basically they caused us to create the same situation. The optics of that probably would not have been too good on a hearing. That's an interesting outcome. Uh, you certainly made lemonade out of those lemons, but I'm still hesitant to to reenact anything just for fear that that Murphy's Law takes over instead of uh, John's Law. You may have missed the point that I mentioned where this was before we were retained. And so oh, I we, did miss that. Okay. We were not involved until afterwards, but that, that particular case, the demonstration kind of played out for us. Hey, I want to go back and talk real briefly about the, the injury and illness records, which can be either the form of the OSHA 300s or the OSHA form 300 A's and, and the four hour interval. And if you could explain a little bit in terms of the timing of that four hour interval, because it, it seems lost on folks, what exactly that means. And, and you know, as a, for instance, if the compliance officer is there at four o'clock in the afternoon, does that mean they need to get them to them by 8 p.m. that evening? Or does that mean, you know, four business hours, basically? I think it bears a little bit of an explanation if you don't mind giving it. Any issue like that. Yeah, it's business hours that I would be working with because it's the uh, the business hours of where the records are located that, that the clock runs on. But I don't play games with that uh, ever. Uh, if the compliance officer at four o'clock in the afternoon, uh, asks for those records, I specify when they expect them to be. Uh, I want to understand what their calculation is. Most of them get the calculation right based on where the business is situated, where the records are maintained. But I want to have a clear understanding because if the compliance officer thinks there's been a violation, they're likely to recommend a citation and issue it anyway. So there might be a defensibility aspect of it, but practically speaking, uh, if it's a close call like that, I want a meeting of the minds before I before I walk out of that that request that day. And if that requires the the employer to to be pumping out records at eight p.m., uh, then I, I'm inclined to put that burden on them. Just I mean, if we can get them out, then we get them out. But uh, I don't play games with that. It's a silly place to get a five or six thousand dollar citation. And that's been my experience kind of overall, you know, with a lot of the points that you mentioned, I mean, a, a lot of, and, and I assume this is true in, in your experience, but I mean, a lot of, you know, kind of the, the issues that crop up relative to compliance officers thinking there's been a candor issue or timing issues or, or whatever the case might be. A lot of that in my experience can be resolved if we, we kind of pause for a few minutes and, and, you know, try to get a meeting of the minds. And, and generally, they're not completely inflexible about kind of those types of details. Has that been your experience also? Yeah. I mean, it's very rare for me to come across a compliance officer that's just so uh, rude and impractical that they won't have that conversation. It hardly ever happens. It's I, I can probably think of every time it has happened in the last 20 years because it happens so rarely. I think you've got to have that line of communication and if you know what you're doing, then then they can figure that out pretty quickly. If 
they know what they're doing. You can figure that out pretty quickly. If one of you isn't very clear, then you ought to be asking more questions. Uh, that's what I do. I ask more questions if I think that they might be new or might not know what they're doing or might be expecting a different experience. Uh, try to have a more practical conversation about what's going to happen and what their expectations are. Uh, because if you meet those expectations, uh, I find that that we we don't get the ricky ticky uh, citations. So Frank, we've talked some about, you know, kind of the legal issues that can crop up for an employer, particularly kind of relating to the candor pieces. And we've also talked about some rights that an employer can exercise in the, in the scope of the inspection or we're we're coming to the end of our time here today. Is there anything more you'd like to say with respect to either of those issues before we close out for today? I don't have more to add to that, John. Uh, I think the key from my perspective is uh, to be confident that there are rights that an employer has and uh, to be engaging and thoughtful in, in the exercise of those rights. That's always been my mantra and the way that I've tried to proceed with these things. I don't always exercise all the rights an employer has because sometimes you don't need to, uh, or sometimes I found I didn't need to, to, to conduct a, an effective inspection, especially with a compliance officer that I knew well and, uh, and, and found to be a, a good practitioner, as it were. Well, Frank, once again, we've reached the end of our time. We will be back in the future, but I really appreciate your thoughts and insight and look forward to our next conversation. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.